is an Odyssey original. This is KDX In-Depth. I'm Rob Arch. And I'm Elsa Ramon in for Charles Feldman. So, Hillary, it's gone. Goodbye. Thing of the past now for Southern California, but we are still feeling her effects, some more than others. We go in-depth. We'll also look at whether it's going to be another 84 years before the next tropical storm or if because of climate change, we'll see one sooner rather than later. Also, Venmo might be leaking some of your personal information. A lot of people use it. You'll want to hear this, but we're going to start with the impacts of tropical storm Hillary, especially in the desert areas, which got a good soaking. They are not used to at all. Donna Griffith is mayor of Indian Wells in a very hard-hit area of the Coachella Valley. I know it's been a busy night and morning for you, uh, so thanks so much for joining us, Mayor. Um, uh, First of all, what's the update for this morning? We've seen the pictures. We've seen (laughs) semi-trucks stuck in mud, cars stuck in mud, people starting to slog through the sludge that has surrounded their homes if they're off the I-10 or in areas off the I-10. What's it been like? Well, it's been a pretty tough 48 hours, I can say that, Um, but this town and the Coachella Valley is full of very resilient people. Um, We still sort of have some threat of thunderstorms later today, but it won't be anything like what we received. We've had significant flooding. It might take a little while to recover, um, setting record rainfalls. And we're used to wind out here in the desert, but these gusts, some of them, you know, 60 miles an hour, um, we just, you know, didn't suspect that that would happen. Um, Pretty humid, but it's only 80 degrees. And when I say 80 degrees, you know, only 80 degrees, I mean, this time of year, we're used to, you know, 110, 115. So we're we're all upset because of the humidity. Otherwise, we'd be out enjoying it. (laughs) Uh, our producer, uh, before we went on the air, said that uh, you were going to be here talking with us about uh, what's going on in your location, and you would explain mm-hmm. what you're dealing with, uh, the flooding and whatnot. And that was his exact words, whatnot. So let me ask you about the whatnot, and I'll explain what I mean. Uh, what are some problems that you're experiencing that people might not think of when they hear that your area has dealt with a lot of water? Well, in the Coachella Valley, you know, I mean, we're a valley surrounded by mountain ranges. And, of course, the valley was made by water. And it's made to come off the mountains and flow through the valley. And we have what we call the Whitewater Channel um, that runs east-west. And it is full. And what happens, of course, to traverse that if there's not a bridge those streets are washed out. So there are significant street closures. Um, Highway 111 is our major thoroughfare, and that has is open. But to get in and out of the Coachella Valley, you travel on the I-10. And I can tell you that I listen to your radio station almost always when I'm driving. Even Thank if you. Thank you weather. very much. <laughs> It's, it's, and, and it's my husband. He's like, just turn on KNX. So, uh, you know, I listen to it all the time, even when there's not weather. But um, I, I believe still that I-10 out um, n- near Palm Springs is still eastbound, maybe closed. So they're working really to clear the mud there. And everybody is working to clear the mud 
in their, um, you know, if, if, if there's not a bridge, but it was, it's very unusual for there to be this kind of trouble on Highway 111 and um, on I-10. So 111's open. 10, I don't even know yet. Well, I've Mayor, I, we just got an update from our producer that uh, it now is open, the 10. We're talking about oh, the good. 10. But, uh, yes, <laughs> but I mean, that is late breaking news. But we, you know, you know that once it is open after some kind of accident or, you know, whatever the reason it was closed for, it takes time now for all that backup to uh, start to dissipate and return to normal flows again. So knowing yeah. that there are a lot of people who travel back and forth to the desert, would you still advise them holding off coming in if they can? Well, here's here's the thing is if it just depends on your patient's level, you know, <laughs> if you if you're OK to sit, you know, I mean, you're going to come from the 10 or the 60 to get in. I heard you had some trouble on the 60. It was backed up. So, you know, if you have patience, sure. And if not, wait, you know, wait a few hours for the, you know, the traffic to clear. But um, as far as coming here, I, I can tell you specifically to Indian Wells, all of our resorts are open. We did have a little bit of damage of one broken window at one of them, which is being fixed as we speak. Um, our world-famous golf resort, Indian Wells Golf Resort, is closed today. The Troon management team is assessing uh, the damage and already beginning to, you know, clear out some of the bunkers and make sure the tee boxes are good. So. I'd say in a couple of days we'll be good to go. All right. Sounds good. Donna Griffith, mayor of Indian Wells in the Coachella Valley. Hillary was the first tropical storm to make landfall in Southern California, you, you know, by now since 1939. So are we clear now for another 84 years? Dan Kayan is a climate science researcher at UC San Diego. And, you know, if only we could predict when we'd get the next tropical storm. But, Dan, how significant was this for California? Well, it was very unusual. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, but um, it fortunately, um, I, I think uh, some of the potential damage that could have happened under slightly different circumstances, higher tides, um, had the system been a little differently placed. So winds might have been stronger along the coast, for example, Uh could are you, are you talking about outcomes. like had it been a different season, a different time of year that would have changed how the outcome would have been or something else? Just just a couple of weeks would have made a, a big difference regarding the the phase of the astronomical tide. So we we happened to have this storm hit on uh, during a period where our our high tide amplitudes were just not very impressive. And uh, consequently, the added uh, sea level because of the um, the storm meteorology, the winds and the low pressure, um, that, that was significant, but it didn't gang up on top of already high uh, astronomical tides. So that was that was really good as far as the coastal situation. Precipitation, at least in some areas, I think the rain rates were not um, tremendously impressive. There were bursts, but um, at least down here in San Diego, 
where I am, um, I was surprised at how uh, how steady and relatively moderate uh, the rainfall was most of the day. We had one burst, and um, that lasted for maybe 45 minutes. You know, climate science, for some reason, I don't fully understand why it became fraught with science uh, long ago. Uh, 20 years ago, I remember the arguments getting hot and heavy about Climate change is coming and people just absolutely saying that this was a political conspiracy, what have you. But the scientists were all, most of them, in general agreement. And what they told us was this. They said, climate change means that you are going to see, for example, more tropical storms and more storms in places that aren't used to getting storms. Now, one storm, Tropical Storm Hillary, coming ashore after 84 years in the same same location is not a trend, but we are seeing storms form in places we're not used to seeing them. I think there are three tropical storms off the uh, uh, in the Atlantic right now that they're keeping an eye on. So will we know that this is a trend? And at what point do the climate scientists get to say, we told you so, if we start seeing more tropical storms hitting uh, Southern California and in the Pacific? Well, it's a small sample. Um, uh, this is not unprecedented. Um, as you mentioned, uh, arguably our our largest uh, tropical storm, actually, hurricane strength, occurred in 1939. So <laughs> we haven't eclipsed that. Um, but will we see one a, sooner rather than later, do you think? What are the odds uh, of that? Yeah, the uh, warmer water means more energy. Um, and as time goes on, of course, the, the globe and the uh, global ocean are warming. So it's quite likely that some of the tropical storms um, are going to get a bit more uh, oomph because of the added warmth and moisture. And that that's a scientific word, right? Oomph? It is very scientific. <laughs> yeah, scientifically uh, measurable. But uh, the the other thing, though, to uh, keep in, in mind here is that in our case, because we're on the western side of a continent, uh, there's a lot of ingredients that have to come into play that differ from the Gulf and East Coast situation. So in our case, we have to have this... Uh, relatively uh, strong northward wind flow, which picks up the tropical storms, which whose genesis area is going to be well south of us. Mm. Um, it, re- it requires waters of almost 80 degrees Fahrenheit in order to uh, develop a tropical storm system. All right. And, that's and not once, us. They, once they depart from those those really warm waters, the uh, the energy essentially gets shut off and they, they start to dissipate All like right. we saw in, in Hillary. So we have to have fast uh, northward transport, which depended on having this, this uh, trough of low pressure offshore and this big high uh, onshore, along with, in this case, exceptionally warm water uh, farther to the south. So um, a lot of things have to fall into place in order for us to experience a tropical storm here in Southern California. All right, Dan Kayan, thank you so much. Climate science researcher at UC San Diego. 
Right now, though, back to Tropical Storm Hillary. We've got a lot of rain uh, this winter and early spring across California, so much so that the U.S. drought monitor shows that much of the state is right now free of drought conditions. So how will Hillary impact that as well as our water supply? Janine Jones is the Interstate Resources Manager for the California Department of Water Resources. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, um, you know, we're in the middle of summer, which is normally a dry period in California. We don't get rain. And uh, the tropical storm was a very fast moving storm that uh, dumped a lot of water in a very short time. Not many reservoirs in Southern California to store it in and really happened too fast to recharge groundwater. So the answer in a nutshell is that from a water supply standpoint, it's not that significant. Uh, as far as adding to the totals from what we got over the winter months, we were able to uh, really um, load up our reservoirs. However, before that, we suffered 23 years of drought, slowly draining our supplies. And California and six other states were ordered by the federal government to lower their use of the water supply, even though we got so much. So our it's a little bit confusing, honestly, to me, because you look at the drought monitor and it says most of the state now is out of the drought. However, you've got states like us and Arizona and New Mexico being told by the federal government to ration the water. It's a it's a bit of a confusing message. So that comment about the federal government just reflects the Colorado River supplies, which are a supplemental supply for most of Southern California except in places in the southeastern desert like Imperial Irrigation District and Palo Verde, where it's their main source of supply. But for uh, the rest of Southern California, um, it has shared in the uh, benefits of this very wet winter that we had. And that's been a big improvement throughout almost all areas in the state, with the exception of slow recovery of groundwater in some areas. So uh, let's make it real simple so that even somebody like me can understand. Uh, As I understand it, we are, uh, even though we had a wet winter, we are years behind uh, in our water needs, right? And so someone, I think a scientist told us that it would take several years of the kind of wet winter we had to really catch us up. So the tropical storm, we were told, dumped a year's worth of water on us. So, yeah, we we catch a year, but we're still behind. Is that the simplest way to put it? Um, not exactly. Because, oh, thank you. <laughs> you know, when we're talking about uh, being behind in a mathematical sense, uh, that reflects years of rainfall that didn't recharge our groundwater uh, aquifers and didn't refill the big reservoirs like Lake Mead and Lake Powell. And it would take multiple wet years to refill Lake Mead and Lake Powell or to refill some of the severely depleted groundwater basins in the Central Valley. So even though we got a lot of rain from this storm in a very short period, uh, the storm moved through very quickly and that uh, rainfall is mostly you know, heading out uh, either the rivers to the ocean or to sinks in the desert where it's not really going to significantly increase our storage. But again, if we are seeing better conditions because we've been piling on top of the uh, water we've been enjoying from our wet winter and now the water we've been able to collect during the tropical storm, 
we, we always are advised to tell people that doesn't mean you can just waste away the water and not care anymore. People still need to keep preservation in mind, correct? Correct. Conservation. Yes, we still need to think about conserving water. And frankly, one of the biggest benefits of the water from this storm really relates to reducing the wildfire risk in some areas, more so than the water supply. Because when you think about it, we're now going into Southern California's normal um, you know, peak of the wildfire season, so to speak, late summer, fall months. And having all that extra moisture on the vegetation um, helps reduce that risk. All right. Thanks so much. Uh, that is uh, Janine Jones with the California Department of Water Resources. You are listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Elsa Ramon in for Charles Feldman. Former President Trump says he's going to skip Wednesday's first Republican presidential primary debate and also maybe all the others. Which might be disappointing for people who are looking forward to Trump verbally sparring with his opponents. Tim Rosales is a Republican strategist who is joining us again here on KNX News. So is this a genius move or a cowardly act? Well, thank you very much for having me. I think it's typical to what you see with uh, any front runner candidate. Um, you know, Governor Gavin Newsom uh, has only debated once in the uh, now six years that uh, he's been uh, governor of California, and that was during his first race in 2018. And he famously avoided you know, debates in, in 2022 uh, and during the recall. I think that when you are a front runner in a race, the conventional wisdom is, is that, no, you don't have to show up to any debates. Um, you make everybody kind of come to you. You make the rest of the candidates fight it out and you maintain uh, your position, your stature uh, as as the person you know in the lead. And, and you do so until you're not in the lead anymore. And so the president, President Trump has got some some time to do that. This could give some ammunition to uh, Democrats, though, because some uh, some of Trump supporters have have in the past when they were facing uh, opponents who didn't want to debate them said that, well, it's because they're scared. They're cowardly. They don't they don't want to debate me. And but now, you know, here comes Mr. Trump. said, I'm not going to take part in this first debate, at least. And they're supporting that. Hey, that's smart. He he absolutely should not do the debate. So you open up the grounds for hypocrisy a little bit. And then moving forward into the general election, if it's Donald Trump who gets the Republican nomination and if President Biden does not want to debate him, Donald Trump doesn't really have any room. Not that I think that would stop him from calling Joe Biden a coward for not debating him. Right. Well, absolutely. And, you know, you've got the same thing on the Democratic side. You know, uh, uh, President Joe Biden right now, you know, some would say, well, you should debate uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is an announced uh, candidate for uh, president of the United States, who is polling anywhere between, you know, 15 to 20 percent of Democratic voters would, uh, you know, like to see someone other than uh, President Joe Biden uh, as the Democratic nominee. And and I don't think we're going to see any uh, Biden-Kennedy debates anytime in the near future. So both Biden and Trump are kind of playing the uh, front-runner card at this point. You know, whether you think it's a, a smart move or a cowardly act, it doesn't change the fact that Trump is taking uh, another road here. He's going to sit down with Tucker Carlson on the platform formerly known as Twitter, now X, and it's been proven that Tucker Carlson gets outrageous numbers when he posts anything on his site. So do you think that is a good move, kind of a compromise for Trump where people will get to hear from him, but it's not live? 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, as a as a campaign, you want to open yourself up for opportunities where you can kind of control the narrative, uh, where you are the center of attention. Uh, you don't have to deal or give a platform to anyone else or any other candidate uh, to speak, and you can simply articulate, you know, what you have to say. And that's what you know former President Trump is doing here. And I think um, you know on the other side, uh, Biden will do the same thing. Uh, there is risk, though, in, yes, you're the front runner, so you, if you don't have to debate, you can opt out and not suffer for it. But the risk is, especially given how many other Republican candidates there are, someone really shining in that debate without Trump there, making some news, maybe. And and I, I kind of have a suspicion that if somebody's going to make news at this debate, it's either going to be Vivek Ramaswamy or Chris Christie saying something that gets a lot of attention or uh, impresses people with how well they did during this debate and Trump wasn't there. And then all of a sudden, some of the news coverage uh, goes to that person rather than Donald Trump, especially if the pre-recorded sit-down interview with Tucker Carlson doesn't draw as many viewers as they hope. Oh, absolutely. And I think that, you know, the the, the loser here in this uh, is uh, Governor Ron DeSantis uh, in saying that, you know, Governor Ron DeSantis is, you know, someone who is, you know, seen probably in, in second place right now in a Republican primary, uh, but he doesn't get the opportunity to share the debate stage with uh, with uh, former President Trump, but he has to share the debate stage with others like Vivek Ramaswamy and uh, and uh, and and other candidates, Nikki Haley and um, uh, and uh, Mike Pence and Tim Scott and and, and those folks. So uh, he then has to kind of you know defend and and those candidates have the opportunity to really make some headway and uh, get their messages out and uh, share with uh, republican voters what their vision is and, and and i think it's a huge benefit if you are one of the candidates that are trying to get attention uh, right now uh, having a debate like this is absolutely what you want to do so uh, i i would look for you know definitely one of those uh, candidates to get a bounce out of this debate all right and very quickly uh, cuz we are out of time i do want to ask you if uh, Ron DeSantis does not do well in the debate if he kind of falls on his face here. He's more or less done, isn't he? Oh, I wouldn't say that. I mean, we've seen this before. You know, people counted John McCain out uh, when he uh, has run, pre, you know, had run previously in his you know, two major presidential campaigns. And he came back in one of them to to win the uh, presidential, uh, the Republican primary. Uh, I don't think uh, anything is done. We're we're only in you know August and, se- and uh, going into September. Uh, but he does need to change kind of the direction and trajectory that his campaign has been going over the last two months. Uh, he's taken steps to do that. I think he 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 will do that. The question is, is how much of a lift can he get uh, here over the next four or five months in order to put himself back in, content, in uh, yeah, as the main contender to President Trump? He's going to need right. a big lift, though. He's only polling at 16 percent. Yeah. Tim Rosales, uh, thank you so much. You're a Republican strategist uh, with us on In-Depth today. So if you use Venmo to send and receive money, you probably assume maybe it's airtight when it comes to keeping your personal information private. But that is not the case, it appears. It's leaking sensitive information about you to the public, such as your contact list. Jenny Gebhardt is with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which deals with digital privacy and civil liberties. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks. So is this... uh a question of just information that's stored on servers somewhere that gets leaked, or is there something more going on here? And are we sharing too much with our digital providers? 
That's a great question. That's actually really easy to understand, right? For a technical topic that can sometimes seem intimidating. Uh, with Venmo, it's just the settings, just like Facebook or Twitter, any social media you use, Venmo has settings, right? Can I, do I make my transactions private or public? Do I make my friend list private or public? And the defaults are public. And until quite recently, until about two years ago, Venmo did not have those settings. So for a lot of users, right, Venmo has been around almost a decade. For a lot of people, they set up their Venmo a long time ago. They might not use it as much now. And the defaults are public, and they might not even be thinking about all the transaction data or friendless and contactless data that is still out there on the internet for anybody to see. Sure. You say it's about settings, though, but if you're not familiar with the app, when you sign up and set up an account, it defaults to public sharing. It automatically shares your transactions. It shares your contacts list. Everybody can see, and I mean everybody, any little emoji you use and any notes you yeah, make I, in your transactions. I know what you were buying this weekend. Yes, exactly. Uh, also, so. You know, cat food. It was very exciting. But it's, but you know, unless people know that they have to go into the settings, it automatically defaults to this. I mean, and nobody's immune from this. We recently heard in the news that Clarence Justice Thomas, a Supreme Court justice, had a Venmo account. It was discovered he was taking payments from lawyers, uh, which is a potential conflict of interest. Joe Biden didn't know he was in default setting too recently, and it was uh, revealed that his uh, contacts list was made public. So, I mean, the general public doesn't know it's just about settings. That's absolutely correct. And that's where this is a really old problem that is easy for Venmo to fix, change the defaults. But right, people don't know that. They don't know to check. There's no notice in Venmo, right? Sh telling you like, hey, did you know that everyone knows you went out to pizza with this person? And really, I think people don't think about, it's a really fair assumption that if I'm using a payment app, like you said, it must be airtight. Like I'm not sharing my bank statements or my credit card statements with the world. Why would I be sharing my Venmo transactions? But I think Venmo, they market themselves as a social app and it's taken them a really long time to respond to common sense complaints from users that they don't want to share this stuff with the whole world, much less with any random person who might be in their phone contact list or their Facebook friend list, two things that have auto-populated Venmo friend list and contact list without a lot of people knowing. So is it just Venmo or should we rush immediately with our hair on fire to every social media app we have and look at the settings? It's never a bad idea if you're concerned about it to go into the privacy settings, go into the security settings and see what you can change. One thing that might be surprising to people for a payment app owned by PayPal, Venmo honestly is one of the worst offenders here. The, the settings that they've offered and the defaults, the granularity of the settings, they're worse than Facebook, which is saying a lot from a privacy advocate who's made a career yelling at worse Facebook. Worse than Facebook, you said. Heard it here first, yes. I really think it took Venmo a long time when Venmo was first launched and for a good seven, eight years, there was no setting to change your contact list. It was public no matter what. And it actually took the news that you mentioned of Joe Biden's Venmo being uncovered. It took a national security incident for Venmo to finally add an option for people to change their contact list and make it private, which is the common sense choice. But why? So I think again, it's but always why? a good idea. But why? Why would they automatically do this? How does this benefit companies like Venmo, which is uh, owned by PayPal, correct? Why right. wouldn't they just make sure that their users have the privacy and the protection they need? What are they gaining from this? Venmo is selling itself as a social payment platform. That's that's its marketing. That's its advertising. Venmo is a social payment platform to share these events and moments and transactions with your friends. I have no doubt that there are some people who like that, right? I think that's totally fine. If you want to do that, have your transactions be public or be shown to your friends, 
go ahead and do that. But I do think that most users, they're not aware of that. They're not thinking about this. They have really reasonable assumptions that it will be private. And so I think Venmo, they just haven't responded to those complaints from those users who find out that this is public and have a problem with it and aren't sure how to change it or aren't sure that once they change it, the change will stick. So it's honestly hard for me to read the mind of right Venmo as a company, but I definitely think the bottom line is that we have the technology. These are old problems that are very fixable and Venmo should change the defaults once and for all. All right, uh, Jenny Gephardt with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Elsa, what's the weirdest thing you've ever bought or sent money for in Venmo? On Venmo? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> See, reveal it on the air so you don't have to worry whether it's being revealed in the app. Really? Honestly, I'm not that exciting. I mean, it's maybe a hamburger. I, I, like I said, cat food. Uh, you know, I paid my hairstylist. She takes Venmo. Right. I, that's it. I'm, well, that's boring. I know. Don't ask me. It be something interesting. I'm going to get on. i tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to get on Venmo and I'm going to buy a lot of embarrassing things. <laughs> And you can follow me on Venmo. Share it globally. Yeah, and it will be shared with everyone. That's going to do it for KDX In-Depth today. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.